Folks, what does everyone do when shopping online? Well, you jump to the reviews and you see what customers actually think. Well, Bull and Branch did the hard work for you. In a recent customer survey, 96% said Bull and Branch sheets get softer with every single wash. Bull and Branch sheets are made from the finest 100% organic cotton threads on planet Earth. Buttery to the touch, super breathable. Bull and Branch sheets are perfect for both cooler and warmer months. Their luxurious signature hem sheets were made without pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. They really do get softer with every single wash. Best of all, Bull and Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping, returns on all orders. You're not going to want to return them. We love our Bull and Branch product. In fact, when I'm on the road, I actually travel with their cable knit throw blanket. It is that good. Their product is just awesome. After a long day, nothing feels better than a restful night's sleep in the softest, most luxurious sheets. Sleep better at night with the softest sheets from Bull and Branch. Get 15% off your very first order when you use code Ben at bullandbranch.com. That's Bull and Branch, spelled B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code Ben. Exclusions apply. See site for details, bullandbranch.com. I would not be here in the state if it were not for you. Uh, my, my family moved here in 2020, pretty famously. I parted the Colorado River and led forth all of my people from California to the state of Florida. I brought along my parents. I brought along two of my sisters. I brought along my parents-in-law, so we're responsible for part of that giant influx of Republican voters that happened into the state. But again, none of that would have happened without your governance. So why don't we start with the election of 2018, because really the fate of this state, and I think the fate of the nation going forward, may have been about this close to going the other way in that election. So tell us about the race of 2018. When did you decide that you wanted to run for governor? And you talk about it in the book. What was sort of the decision-making process? Well, I think some of you who I've known for a while remember that I was uh, elected to the U.S. Congress about 10 years ago. I was um, doing that. I was in my third term. But what happened was uh, at the end of 2016, my wife and I had our first child, our daughter, Madison. And I'm in Washington three nights a week. They're at home. And I'm kind of going back and forth. But I'm like, wait a minute. You know, I don't want to be in Washington three nights a week uh, when my wife and our, and our baby's there. Then we had our son, 2018. And it was kind of the same thing. And so I was like, you know what? Uh, I thought we were going to lose the House in 2018. I wasn't rooting for that, but I thought Republicans were going to lose the House, and we did, uh, because that's just a natural cycle of politics. So did I really want to be up there away from my family with Nancy Pelosi as Speaker? Nah, (laughs) probably don't want to sign up for that. But I thought I could still serve, but I said, you know, I'm only going to go through this if it's something I can really, really make a difference. And so our governor was term limited, so you had an open uh, race for that, that office. And I said, if I, could, if I could do that and win, I would be able to make a real big difference because as the executive, you can set the agenda. It's just much different than being one of 435. And so uh, we decided that that would be something that that I could do well in. Uh, We knew that it would be a difficult slog. Uh, Primary was difficult. I did win it by a lot, but, you know, we took a lot of arrows on that. And then the general election, remember, this was a blue wave year. You know, I'm running against the guy the media has anointed as like the next Obama. We know a lot about him now, but they were not talking about all that stuff then. (laughs) And so we ended up going. And if you think about it, Florida, the decade before I became governor, all the races were one point. 2010 governor, 2012 president, 2014 governor, 2016 president. And then here we are, 2018, in a blue year, I probably shouldn't have been able to do it based on, on, those, on, on that vote trend. But we were able to win uh, less than 1%. 
32,000 votes uh, for, for that election. And um, I think it's a mark of success when you come in winning by 32,000 votes, you work hard for four years, and they reelect you by 1.5 million votes. So let's talk about your governing strategy because it is extremely, I would say, energetic, to say the least. And, and not only energetic, but uh, but smart in how you approached governing. So you came in knowing that there is, in every executive branch, an entrenched bureaucracy. And, and you knew that. But unlike you know, other people who have been challenged by the entrenched bureaucracy when they become chief executive of a thing, you, know, you actually came in and you kind of knew how to, how to clean that out, how to make sure that, that the executive branch of the Florida government was going to run as it was supposed to run. How do you do that? What, what are the important things to do there? Well, a lot of it is just the personnel you select need to be people that are aligned with your mission. And the problem is, whether you're in Washington or Tallahassee, is that there's a pre-existing swamp, so to speak, a political swamp in those places. So in D.C., you know, a lot of times these people will be in D.C. They may serve an administration, but their loyalty is to the political class in D.C., not necessarily to the administration. So in Florida, what we said is, look, you know, I want people uh, that are here for the mission, uh, my first chief of staff was uh, not from Tallahassee, had been here in the past and so knew the ropes, but was definitely not going to stay in Tallahassee after he served uh, his stint. And then other people that we had in made sure that they shared the mission. He said, you're not going to leak. You're not going to talk to journalists. You're not going to do any of this you know, without authorization. We had some hiccups the first 30, 60 days. We fired people. And I can say since the early days of my administration, over four years, We've not had one leak out of my office. I had no leaks on the campaign. And it's because uh, these are mission-first uh, folks, and so their uh, kind of personal interests are for us to do a good job and to, to make some history. And they're going to have opportunities go after this, but they're not focused on kind of ingratiating themselves with the insiders in Tallahassee. And I just think it's a, it's a lesson for folks because personnel is policy. I mean, if you have people that are gonna try to undermine you, you can have the best ideas in the world. Uh, ultimately, you're not gonna get them to stick the way you need to unless you have dedicated people that are carrying out the agenda. So I wanna rewind a little bit and, and go back in your kind of career and your life and talk a little bit about your understanding of the other side of the aisle, because it is very different from how a lot of people in Republican politics have understood the left. You, you understand the nature of the threat in a way that I think a lot of Republicans, particularly in the so-called establishment, do not, uh, which leads you to treat the press differently, which, which I want to get to in a little bit. Uh, it seems from your book that a lot of that was being from the panhandle of Florida and then going to Yale and Harvard and experiencing something very different. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I was a baseball player uh, growing up, and, you know, my Little League team went to the Little League World Series, you know, in Dundee, Florida. We had a great program, and we were one of the best teams in the state, and, I mean, most of the people uh, on my high school team, you know, got played uh, Division One college baseball, including me. Well, you know, I was getting recruited, because I had good grades and, and test scores, so I was getting recruited by, like, Princeton and Yale and all these places. Like, me, I had never been to New England in my life. Um, I had not been very many places in my life, to be honest, 
And so I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know colleges were liberal. I didn't even really have a sense of that. I was really green in terms of that. And I was there and I was gonna work hard. I thought it would advance myself. Uh, and I thought obviously to be able to play, uh, to play baseball. Well, when I got to Yale, uh, I was wearing what we would wear on the west coast of Florida, jean shorts, t-shirt, and flip-flops to the first day of school there. Um, that was not exactly the way the kids from Andover and Exeter dressed, and it was a big culture shock for me. And, you know, I was really one of the most blue-collar kids there. Uh, and so that was one thing. But then when you actually got into the classroom, it was really the first time I saw kind of unadulterated leftism, you know, because where, where we were from, I didn't know if you were Republican, Democrat. I mean, people, you know, you know, trust in God, love your country, kind of the basic stuff. That was that was pretty universal in terms of how things were. Right. And Yale's motto, one of the mottos is for God, for country, for Yale. And they have a big, beautiful memorial of the World War I veterans who uh, left Yale to go serve in the war and died. And so, you know, you did see some vestiges of patriotism. But man, when you got into that classroom, you know, attacking religion, attacking people that believe, attacking God, uh, anti-American. I mean, we're basically being told that uh, the Soviet Union was the victim in the Cold War and that we, that we started it and it was all our fault and all these things. And I'm just like, you know, this is not for me. Uh, this is not true. Uh, and these people should have appreciation for this country. And the people that had the least appreciation were the most privileged kids there that would always be buying into this nonsense. So I think that that really helped me uh, chart a course where I started to develop my own uh, philosophical views about government, politics, about the country. By the time I went to Harvard Law School, I was definitely set at that point. There was nothing they were going to do to be able to change me. But, you know, a lot of parents worry about you work to have values for your kids. They go to university, and then can the university undo all that? And I think for me, uh, it was really the opposite. I rebelled against it. Incidentally, you know, I ended up going to the Navy, doing all this stuff. So I'm running for Congress in 2012 and I'm in a seven-way primary. Everyone's saying they're the most conservative thing since sliced bread, all this other stuff, yada, yada. So the voters are like, well, how do we know you're going to go up there and actually stand by your convictions and do what you said you would do? And really, you know, you had no way to prove that. I mean, I had a good background, and people liked that I was a veteran and everything. But what I would tell the, the primary voters, I was like, listen, uh, I'm one of the few people in this country that went through both Yale and Harvard and came out more conservative than when he went in. And that's not easy to do. And if I can do that, then there's no way the swamp is going to change me. It just occurred to me that on this stage, maybe the, the two alum from Harvard Law School they are least proud of, actually. That just occurred to me. In, in, in any case, yeah, you, you then go into the military, which, again, is not something that is very usual coming out of Harvard Law School. Usually people coming out of Harvard Law School, I know, you, you go and you get a, a, a very well-paying job at a major law firm to pay off all the enormous amounts of debt you've now sunk yourself into, but instead you went into JAG and you decided that you were going to serve in the military. What went into that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think it was just 9-11 had happened, uh, our country changed, I was of the view that, you know, I should do my part. We didn't have a draft or anything, uh, but I wanted to do. Now, I was, I was in this, this thing on this one path, and so I was like, could I apply that to the military service? And people said, yeah, you know, you could do. You could be an officer with JAG and all this other stuff. And so I ended up commissioning. You know, I, the negative was just, you know, I, I, I didn't get any education paid for, so it's like I'm commissioning. 
I'm making probably a fraction of what my classmates are, and I'm still paying the same loans off. But you know, my view was, is like, at the end of the day, uh, I think it will be honorable service. I think it'll be something that, that I would want to do. And it turned out that that was the case. I mean, I got to do a lot of different stuff. This is the global war on terrorism kind of at its height. Uh, and I did some things that are more rudimentary in the Navy, like I was a prosecutor for, for the court martials, like you see in uh, Kevin Bacon and A Few Good Men. And so I did that role. And it was, it was fun. I was like 25, 26 years old handling all this stuff. I did some stints in Gitmo when they had the terror detainees uh, down there. And then I got assigned to SEAL Team 1 uh, in Coronado, California. We trained for a couple months and then we deployed to Fallujah, was our headquarters uh, during kind of the Al-Anbar awakening period. And uh, so just in like a few year period, I mean, I had tremendous experiences. And so I think it was definitely a good decision uh, at the time and an even better decision in hindsight. So you come back, and then you decide that you want to run for Congress. So you went from doing one unconventional thing to doing the dumbest thing any person can do, which is run for the United States Congress. Because if you win, you have to be in Congress. And, uh, and that, that's sort of a thing that, that you apparently learned in the book, is how difficult the congressional process is because of the entrenchment of the establishment and, and the priorities of people that are very different inside Washington, D.C. than sort of outside Washington, D.C. Yeah, I mean, so... You know, I, what, what led me to do the Congress was I get out of military, you know, I'm doing different things. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing some private legal. I was working on, on working on some businesses with some buddies that, that because I ended up running for Congress, I wasn't able to, to stick with. Um, but one of the things I was like, you know what? I can do things. Like, I have this education, like, and this is like the Tea Party movement. People are reading the Declaration of Independence and the Federalist Papers and all this stuff. And that's like right up my alley. So we, we did a book that um, was not as good a seller as this book by any stretch. I think about a dozen people read it. But... I would go, and it was talking about the founding fathers, and talking about their view of kind of our foundational principles, and then it was kind of contrasting that with what was going on with the Obama administration and how they were really putting us in a different direction. I actually think it, the insights have, have, have held up because I think this was during the first term, but his second term, I think, really laid the foundation for a lot of the wokeness that we're seeing, uh, a lot of the CRT and that type of thinking. So I think I was right to do it. But nevertheless, we, so basically my wife and I, we would go and speak to these groups, Republican group here, uh, you know, a conservative group, whatever, and I'd have to speak to like 50 people, 100 people, the villages, I could get 500 people because, you know, they like this stuff. And so we'd sell books and everything, and it, and it was great, uh, but it wasn't something that I was really rocketing to the top about, and, um, and I learned a lot because no one knows who you are. Like, you see, people know my name now, so they're more likely to buy this book. That's just the nature of it. But what people would tell me is they were like, you shouldn't be doing this, you, you need to run. I'm like, run for what? They're like, run for something. I'm like, well, I don't wanna just run for something. But then what happened was, it was a redistricting year, so Florida gained two seats in the congressional delegation, so we went from 25 to 27, and it just so happened where I was living in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida, and included St. Augustine and Daytona, so much further up the coast uh, than here, they created this new seat, and so there was no incumbent. So you had seven people eventually threw their hat in on the Republican side, and it was kind of late developing because of the map. So I got in six months before the election, the primary, no money, no one knew who I was, and so we had to work to do kind of the basic campaign stuff, and we did, but my wife and I are like, you know what? 
there's going to be 60,000 people that vote in this primary. We're not going to be able to reach all of them. Let's just knock on people's doors. And so you could get the, the plots of who votes in these Republican primaries religiously, and you just go to their door. If they're not there, leave them literature or whatever. So I had a Ford F-150 pickup truck. I bought my wife a scooter, and we would load the scooter in the bed of the truck. We'd drive to whatever neighborhood we were going to canvas. I'd drop her off at one side of the neighborhood with the scooter and her literature. I'd go on the other side of the neighborhood with my truck and my literature. We'd canvas. We'd meet in the middle. Then we'd go on to the next neighborhood. And we did that where we each knocked on thousands of doors over a, probably a four-month period. But I'll tell you, you can't get from a poll the, what you can get on someone's doorstep when they're telling you in their own words uh, what they think the problems are with the country. And there were a number of things that people would say, but there were certain things that I could be at one end of the district or the other, and one of the things they were really frustrated about was that you, know, you had these Republicans would always run and say all these you know, right things, they'd elect these guys, and then they'd get to D.C., and they'd go native, and they wouldn't actually follow through and do the things that they said they would do. And in, in reality, I mean, that was kind of, uh, you could see the ground was fertile for someone to come in eventually, which would happen in 2016, uh, and say, you know what, these guys are useless, you know, we need to try something else. But there was huge frustration with that. So when I got to D.C., you know, I'm like, you know what, I told these people I was going to do what I said I'd do. Like, I'm not disappointing them. And so, you know, I made decisions to, uh, to not kind of play the game. I'd sleep and I slept on my couch in my office there because you're there three nights a week, sleep in the couch. There's a, there's a gym and shower locker room in the basement of the house office buildings. You know, I was not out and about doing a lot of the stuff that they do on the cocktail circuit. I basically would uh, read for the next day. And it was, I mean, it was kind of a boring existence, but that was really what I thought I needed to do to be true to what I said I would do. We, um, I sold all my stocks before I got into office because, you know, I used to trade stocks as a hobby, but I didn't want to. These, these, these congressmen are trading stocks. They're making money and you wonder how they're getting that advice. So I didn't want to be in a situation where I made some trades and then two years later I voted on something and people tried to do. So I didn't do it. Obviously, it's made me poor as a result of that, but we didn't do it. And then, you know, I didn't accept the congressional pension. These guys get a pension after only a few years. You wouldn't be able to get that in the private sector. And so we said that no on that. And, and I think that I, I proved to my constituents that, you know, I was a citizen going up there to try to do what they wanted me to do, but I wasn't going to play the game. Now, on the flip side of that, when you don't play the game, you don't have as many opportunities. They're not going to let you run bills, you know, if you're not towing the line on some of the things that none of you want any of these guys to be towing the line for. But that's just kind of the way the game plays. So the conundrums always when you get up there, see, the Democrats don't have to worry about it. It's a Democrat town. It's wired to help the Democratic Party, the lobbyists, the media, everything about it, the bureaucracy is all wired in that direction. So being a part of the swamp as a Democrat, you're just being a part of, of what a lot of your voters are fine with. For us, it's different. Our voters want nothing to do with any of that stuff. So you gotta fight against the current every step of the way. It's not always the easiest thing to do for a lot of folks, but when you're trying to do that, you're not going to end up being the chairman of a committee. You're not going to end up being in the leadership. That's just the reality. So, so there's a conundrum about you come in wanting to do these things, but in order to get in a position where you can really make a difference, you kind of got to play the game to get there. But in the course of playing the game, 
Have you just been neutered at that point and you're no longer that person that had the fresh ideas? And I think we've seen that play out over and over again. So I made my decision to kind of just stick what I thought was right. Um, yeah, I didn't necessarily follow the DC uh, circuit or the DC thought. I think it, my constituents liked me better for it, but clearly uh, I was not going to be put in certain positions as a result of those choices. So let's fast forward now. Now, now you're governor and you come in with an ambitious agenda and you, you enter office and you, have, you stack up a bunch of wins in the very early going of your administration and then comes COVID. And COVID, you know, they say that crises make leaders and COVID is a crisis that not only exposed what a great leader you are, but turned Florida into this massive magnet state. Without COVID, I'd wanted to move to Florida well before COVID. My wife was like, no, we're not, we're not going anywhere. We're staying in California. And then all veils were removed because in places like California, you literally could not take your kids to a park. They shut down all the parks. You couldn't take your kids to the beach. They shut down all the beaches. And then they double curfewed because they said you couldn't leave your house for that. You also couldn't leave your house because there were giant riots outside. And so if you, if you left your house to actually be in the riot, that was okay. But if you left your house to not be in the riot, then, then that, was, that was bad. And so you had to stay indoors to shield yourself from the people who were congregating to riot outside, but not spreading COVID because it's an incredibly woke virus. So at that point, my wife turned to me and she's like, okay, we can finally go check out Florida. So in a bizarre way, the pandemic worked out strangely well for my family. In any case, the, you know, the, the pandemic, obviously, it, it, this massive tragedy breaks on America's shores. And you, as a governor, are hit with all of these calls by the federal government, by the Dr. Fauci's of the world, to shut everything down. At the beginning, nobody knew anything, but pretty quickly, you start taking a different tack, and suddenly, it's not just that you're doing something different, it's also that the media have decided that you are public enemy number one. Andrew Cuomo's the greatest governor in America, and you are death Santas, shutting down the beaches and killing everyone. So, let's start with, how, how is your decision-making process what was the decision-making process for you as you decided to not follow the herd on a lot of these shutdown politics that were, that were very popular at the time? Well, if you go back and read Dwight Eisenhower's farewell address, a lot of people know about it because he warned about the dangers of the military-industrial complex, and that's, that's uh, important. I think he was right about that. But he also talks about how in post-World War II America, you started to see an intermingling of federal money with scientific research. And he said there's a danger that, that given that, that public policy itself could be taken captive by what he termed a scientific technological elite. And he said that that would not be good for the country because they have a very narrow view uh, about what they're trying to accomplish. It really falls to the elected leader to harmonize all the competing interests and to not let policy be captive by a very narrow uh, way of thinking, as important as it may be and as much as you want to consult with that type of thinking, but that should not be governing the entire society. And I think that was basically the choice that we had to face with, with COVID is, are we going to turn everything over to Dr. Fauci? who not only has no competence to talk about your liberties or your way of life or what, what, what is um, the best way to pursue happiness, he doesn't care about your liberties or your pursuit of happiness. And that's probably not his job, but even if you think he would want to, he doesn't care. So 
I was like, look, I've got I've to take this on myself. And so what happened is as we got into April of 2020, you started to get more of the data to show exactly what we're dealing with. For example, you know, the reason why we did the, the 15 days to slow the spread and all that was because they were passing around models saying, you know, in two to four weeks, every hospital in America is going to have uh, massive overcrowding. They were predicting Florida 100,000 short of beds. We only have 64,000 licensed beds in the whole state. Imagine needing another 100,000. Uh, well, those models were wrong. I mean, they just were very, very wrong. And it was apparent as we got into April that that was the case. They also didn't know exactly how lethal it was and how much it had spread. There was a thought in the beginning that maybe it really hadn't spread in America and you could just you know, separate and maybe it wouldn't take hold here. But I think you started to see antibody studies where way more people had antibodies than were testing positive. Dr. Bhattacharya at Stanford had done that. So it had already spread enough to where you couldn't physically contain it and it was going to be something that we were going to have to live with. Uh, and then also the fact that way more people had had it than we thought did mean the mortality was lower than we had feared. It was still something that was significant, particularly for elderly people, um, but it was something that was a very, very minor risk for people that were under 40. And so the idea that having the kids out of school and all this other stuff, you know, that was a night way. And oh, by the way, we also saw in late March and early April a control group in Europe with Sweden. Sweden did not do Fauciism. Great Britain, Italy, all them were doing it. And basically, there was no difference. Uh, and, and, and all these other things, Sweden did a lot better. So I was just like, you know, I cannot let this state descend into this Faucian dystopia. We'll never get out of it if we go down this road any longer. So, so we said, look, you know, we've got to have we've got to have businesses open. We've got to have schools open. We've got to do all these things. And you know, we got attacked religiously for it. You know, but the thing was, as we were into like May of 2020, you know, COVID was very low. And so, you know, people were starting to think, well, you know, you know, who knows? But as we got into the middle of June, and it turns out now we didn't know at the time, COVID is seasonal and regional. In the south, it's in the summer. In the Northeast, it's in the winter. Now we have some in the winter too, but not as much as there. Midwest has a, has a fall spike. Why it is like that, I don't know, but the pattern repeated itself for three years. And so you started to see the Sunbelt states have it. Now the media was saying, because you were open, that's why you got people hanging out for Memorial Day at the beaches and fishing and golfing and doing all this. That was the reason. Uh, but I had looked at the different uh, waves that had taken place in other parts of the world, and they all were basically the same. They had six to eight weeks up and then down, regardless of these mitigations. Sweden's curve didn't look much different than Italy and whatnot. So I was not, in, but they were attacking me. Fauci saying you got to shut down the state, uh, that this is all because, you know, you've been reckless, all this stuff. Now, I knew that that wasn't the case, but man, we were getting hammered day after day after day. And during this time, I announced that all schools needed to be open and people were hammering me for that. They were just so mad. And the thing was, 
there, and the media was obviously, you know, gunning for me. But, you know, I had even a lot of my supporters. I mean, you know, I win huge percentage of the elderly in Florida. I mean, these are people that support me. A lot of elderly were still very concerned about this. And the question was, would the schools cause it to be more apparent and endanger the community? And, and we had seen in Sweden that was not the case. But people like Fauci and all them, they were pretending uh, like it was. So you had all that coming to a head. And basically, I had to make the decision, yes, it it would have been easy for me to just like do a, do some mandates here, this or that, maybe say no on the schools just to get the heat off me. But that would not have been leadership. And the leader has got to do what's right, knowing that by me standing up for the jobs of the people that I represent, that very well may cost me my own job. And I think that summer of 2020, there's a lot of people that were saying that uh, I wasn't going to be long for this political world because of that. And they were blaming me and, um, and saying the schools were going to be a disaster and that we were just walking in all these problems. Uh, but I was very much uh, convinced, based on the data, that what ended up happening was what would happen. Wave would go up and down. Kids would go in school. You know, it'd be fine. It's something you have to deal with. I mean, I always recognize that, but stopping society and not letting people participate who want to was not the answer. And so it turns out that uh, everything we would do, there'd be a huge spasm in the media, but then like three to six months later, these other states would be doing what Florida was doing all along. And this pattern repeated itself in all these different things. So I think it's just, you, you've gotta be in a situation knowing, okay, ultimately the buck stops with you, it may be politically convenient to say, well, this health bureaucrat told me I had to do this and to try to shirk responsibility, but that's not leadership. Leadership is taking, taking it on, being responsible for the decisions uh, and letting the, the chips fall where they may. But you started to see a shift uh, as we got into maybe August of 2020. I mean, places like the Panhandle, you would never have known there was COVID, right? But then more and more people start coming to other parts of Florida and this became kind of the place where people could escape, people could move to. And the businesses, particularly in Southern Florida, I said, local government can't close you, don't worry, go ahead and do what you gotta do. So people started doing well business-wise and people started, our, our employment roles started to go up, our revenue was going up, and then you go into 2021 and we were just cooking uh, uh, on all cylinders, but it really all went back to those early you know, weeks and months. And I think the places like the California that really plunged their stage into Fauciism, they still have not fully recovered from that experience. San Francisco has not recovered from that experience. I don't think you would have had the riots the way you did without the lockdowns. I don't think you would have had some of these other problems without the lockdowns. We certainly wouldn't have had the inflation that we've seen uh, without the lockdowns. So there's all these different things. In Florida, we have more people employed by far today than we did prior to COVID. And for the first time in recorded history, we have more Floridians employed than New York has employed. And we've got all the elderly, many of whom are retired. So I think that it's just a question of, of how you approach leadership, but a willingness to kind of get your hands in the nitty gritty and look at this data yourself and not just pass the buck to some unelected bureaucrat. Well, th this does bring up the, the issue of the media because the media were egregious 
you know, they've been egregious all along. They were particularly egregious during the early days of COVID with regard to, to how they were treating Florida, how they were treating your governorship. One of my favorite things the media kept, kept suggesting over and over is that unemployment, those, those rates were fluctuating based on the amount of COVID in a particular society, neglecting, of course, the fact that, again, COVID went literally everywhere and all of the worst states in terms of unemployment, all of the worst ones were all blue states that had done lockdown politics and all the best ones were places that, that tended to be red and had not actually done lockdown politics. So yeah, how did you deal with the media during this time? Because it really has informed, I think, why so many Republicans, conservatives love you as a human being is the fact that you, you really have not allowed the media to set the tone, set the narrative, and you haven't treated them as they pretend to want to be treated, as objective arbiters of the truth. So, I mean, the one thing, I mean, the first thing they hit me on in COVID was he's not closing all the beaches in Florida. We have people on the beach. Well, you know, with a respiratory virus, being outside is not a big deal. So they want, I had tourists, these are almost all tourists, they're here. What am I going to do with them? They're all going to go cram indoors somewhere. And, you know, they created a major hysteria. And most of the counties eventually ended up doing like, not all of them. And then I said, guys, you got to get it back. And so they got it back pretty quickly. But they wanted me to do something that I didn't think was, was right. And I think it was just they were trying to find a way to attack me. And then basically everything we did from there, they would do um, attack. And then they would never acknowledge when we were right. But look, you just have to understand. They have an agenda. They're coming at you in bad faith. They are trying to craft narratives they are not reporting facts. And so their agenda is partisan. Their narratives are not constrained by what the facts were. And as much as I have not liked the media bias in the past, I kind of feel like 25, 30 years ago, if there were like some key facts, they would have to acknowledge those and they would shade it left to try to create the story there. But now they just ignore facts. I mean, an example, you know, they're trying to hit us on uh, rejecting this AP course. They did an AP African-American studies proposal from the college board. It wasn't even a full, so they wanted, the, uh, they wanted the feedback. And so our Department of Education looked at it, and a lot of it was fine, but then they had sections that were basically neo-Marxism. They had things like um, queer theory, they had CRT, they had intersectionality, all this stuff, which, you know, if that's what you wanna do in your own life, that's fine, but our tax dollars should not be going to indoctrination of high school students. So that's what we didn't want. Well, the media, and so we were not the only state that objected to this. And in fact, I have people that are strong on the left who've been big critics of me who said this is, this is bad. So it isn't even like, it was really not controversial if you actually looked at the facts. But what the media would do is they would say, Florida is trying to eliminate black history. And I'm like, geez, that's, that's weird that you would say that. Uh, I actually am familiar with Florida law and Florida stand. Oh, it requires the teaching of black history. It requires a teaching of this, that, that. It requires the teaching of racial discrimination throughout American history. So where are you getting this? And the fact is they don't care about the facts. They don't care what our laws are or what our standards are. They saw because this AP course uh, was rejected that they had an opportunity to create a narrative and so they go to do it. Now some of them have had to kind of try to apologize. They never really fully do or whatnot. But here's the thing. I think because they've been doing this for so long and it's not just about me, it's about other stuff. But people realize that they're trying to push an agenda 
And anytime they come up with something about Florida, people are more skeptical about it because they've seen so much of it debunked. I mean, are you honestly saying that one of the people on one of them said that we are not allowed to have a book with an African-American in it? And I'm just thinking to myself, are you crazy? Very, I know most people don't believe that. I mean, come on. So I think they go so far and they're just focusing on their partisan agenda that it actually gives us an opening to be the reasonable people in the room uh, because look, all I'm doing is citing the facts about what is required in the state of Florida uh, and, and in those things they are. But you just have to say, they are not gatekeepers, these legacy outlets. They are not umpires. They are active political participants with an agenda. And it's not your agenda. It's not my agenda. So people can come to my press conferences or whatever, that's fine. Uh, but we are, in my office, or in my campaign uh, for 22, we don't indulge them and act like they're somehow honest brokers because they're not honest brokers. Well, you know, the left has always considered the media one of their biggest assets. But I think one of the things that you've been proving through your governorship and, and through the way that you're treating the media is that actually the, the press can actually be quite a detriment for, for the left-wing agenda because they, they overshoot the mark pretty routinely. And it turns out that in overshooting the mark so dramatically, it turns out a bunch of people who are center or even center left realize that the media are not in line with them. And so this brings us to the subject of don't say gay, right? So the, so the media suggested that the Parental Rights and Education Act was actually a bill that prevented anyone in the state of Florida from saying gay. And now that I've said it twice on stage, I assume you're gonna physically arrest me and drag me off in cuffs because that's the way it works in the state of Florida. And the, the media went on, they're still calling it the Don't Say Gay Bill. They're still suggesting that there is an active attempt to prevent anyone from being gay in the state of Florida. And what they're neglecting is the fact that what the bill actually says is you are not allowed to indoctrinate K through three students on issues of sexual orientation and sexual identity, which seems pretty commonsensical to pretty much everyone, including independents and Democrats. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting because this thing's working its way through the legislature and it was not actually a bill like I told them to do per se, but then we started to get reports about some of this going on around the country, some reports in Florida. And I'm just like, well, we're obviously, we don't want you know, that going on. Teach them to read, write, add, subtract. You do not need to be getting into these issues, uh, with, particularly with these very young kids. Parents don't want that. Well, the media started to really uh, pick this up and the left gives it this moniker. And the media just repeats it over and over again. And while this is going on, I didn't even necessarily know everything that was in the bill. So I got my, tell my stuff, I was like, give me the latest, let me look at this. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, K through three, that is the hill they're gonna die on? I was like, I'll tell you, I think it should be you know, more than that. And, 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 and you probably can be. But, um, and so I was like, you know what, I'm gonna fight back on this. I was like, I'm not gonna let. So I do press conferences, media would start saying, you know, these, uh, these phrases, and I'd stop them, and I'd say, where does it say that in the bill? Oh, well, uh, where does it say it? Uh, okay, it doesn't say it. What does the bill actually say? And I'd make them talk about what the facts were, and then we'd say, hey, this is wrong to be going down the road of, of this type of instruction, and we wanna make sure that parents are protected. And people responded very positively to that. And it's not just Republicans. You look at parents across the board, politically, 
you know, they don't want this going on, particularly in the elementary schools. It's just not appropriate. So they tried to do it. I think they thought that it was effective, but in reality, people would do polls on it and they'd find like 70%, you know, agreed with, with what we were doing. But they, I think they did a smart thing because they wanted to stop it. They knew they didn't have the numbers to stop it. So they pressured Disney to get involved in it. And the reason I think is because Disney, for 60 years in Florida has gotten every single thing that it's wanted until I became governor. Then that changed, but at the time, so, so they get Disney to weigh in and I think they were hoping that that would cause me to uh, back down from signing the bill. They thought wrong on that, so, so we signed the bill and I made the point, uh, this company does not run this state. We run this state, and we're gonna do it based on your interests, not on their interests. But then Disney came out and said, well, we're gonna to work to repeal it and sue over it, all this other stuff, and Disney is using the same narrative. Uh, and then you had those videos of those Disney's executives come out saying they're programming, they wanna jam the sexuality and the programming for the young kids, and so I was just looking at that. And you know, I look at this stuff as a governor, but I also look at it as a dad. And I have a six, a four, and a two-year-old at home with my wife that, uh, that, that we obviously uh, pay a lot of attention to. And it's very important to us that they are given good values and good education. And I just think you should be able to send these young kids to school. I think that they should be able to watch cartoons without having an agenda imposed on them. And that's what I wanna see in the state of Florida. So Disney was in this situation where, unlike any individual or company in our state's history probably, they have had their own government. It's like 44 square miles, about the size of Miami, that they have controlled in a corporate governance fusion basically. Tucker Carlson referred to it as almost like the Vatican is in Italy, where they just have this dominion that's theirs. They're exempt from a lot of the laws that other businesses and you have to follow. They got a lot of tax breaks as a result of this, and they racked up 700 million in municipal debt. And so when they're taking a position on this, I don't think these companies should be doing this. I think it's counterproductive. I don't think you want the economy politicized. But if they do, they do. In this case, they're doing it, and you as Floridians are effectively subsidizing this activism because of the special arrangement they're enjoying. And that was not acceptable to me. And so this company had been put on a pedestal. Florida, decades ago, joined itself at the hip. At, and at the time, you know, Disney was representing, I think, a different, a different value set. Now, uh, I don't think they're representing the best interests of Florida or parents or students. And so that arrangement was just simply untenable. Uh, and so we worked to end it. And in fact, on Monday, I finally was able to sign legislation so that Disney does not have self-governing in Florida anymore. They're gonna be treated like SeaWorld and Universal and all the other places. And that's really good policy anyways, but clearly we can't be in a situation where we're subsidizing a company to then turn around and oppose core state policies uh, that we have. And so it's unfortunate that it kind of led to that, but I'll tell you, uh, seeing all the authorities that they had amassed for themselves, uh, I don't think that this could have been ended if they had not have done it because they really had a hammer lock on the legislature. 
But what happened is they lost a lot of popularity, they lost a lot of clout, and it opened up the opportunity to really fix what was an egregious form of corporate welfare. Yeah, this in particular, you know, I think as, as a conservative, this in particular was very important, not just because I, I truly believe in the sentiment, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And Disney played a stupid game and they won a stupid prize for it. Um, but, but also because you know, the, the wokeism that has now infused so many corporations, the attempt to turn corporations into essentially a tool of the left while retaining special benefits like, like Disney was, now, that sort of stuff has to end, because if that doesn't end, then what we are going to end up with in the country, just more broadly speaking, is a bifurcated economy with, with service providers that only service people of a particular point of view. And that's not good for the country. There can't be a future for a country like that. So I talk about in the book, um, and I think if you guys want to get it, DeSantisBook.com, it's... Um, <laughs> it's uh, so what you have is we, we used to think, you know, our roles to kind of make sure the government is, is not infringing on you, your ability to work and commerce and all that. And we still do that. Obviously in Florida, we're proud of the policies that we have that have allowed our economy to flourish. But uh, the threats to freedom are now in other institutions in addition to government. So when these companies are doing this, they're effectively exercising public power. For example, the Wall Street banks all agree we're not going to finance anybody involved in the firearm industry. That's effectively changing uh, our Second Amendment policy without ever being elected to anything, without ever being held accountable by the voters. And so we find ourselves in a situation, I can win the state of Florida by 1.5 million votes, more than any governor candidate has ever wanted by a country mile, and yet the left can still impose its agenda on the people of Florida through some of these other activities and institutions. Yeah, they're not gonna be able to do anything in the legislature, but if they don't need the legislature and they can do ESG through banks or through uh, other companies, you know, that is something that we have to contend with. And so I think the threats to freedom now uh, span a variety of institutions. I think government is part of the threat, uh, but I don't think it's limited to that. And so we've worked hard to fight back across the board. It's not healthy for an economy if all these decisions are politicized and if companies have to take positions on political issues. Uh, it, it will end up uh, making our economy much less successful than otherwise would do, but it's a one-way ratchet. They're only pressured from one side to get involved to do whatever the woke left wants to do, and they think if you genuflect to these people, then that's the way to get them off your back. That's not true. The minute you show them weakness, they're gonna come back at you in the future, and they're gonna keep going back. The way to handle these people is to tell them to pound sand. So, Governor, one of the other issues that I think drove so many people to the state, obviously COVID drove a lot of people to the state because there was freedom here. But the other issue was, of course, the extraordinary spike in crime that we saw in the middle of 2020. The media called them mostly peaceful protests. Uh, they, they were not mostly peaceful for the people who are having their businesses burned down or who were curfewed in their homes. Uh, the, the state of Florida has taken a very different tack with regard to its treatment, particularly of law enforcement. Law enforcement are not actually treated as anathema here, precisely the reverse. Maybe you can talk about how you believe law enforcement ought to be treated in the state, what you've done in the state in order to facilitate actual law abiding. 
Sure. I, I mean, when, uh, when I saw the rioting start in Minnesota and some of these other places, we called out the National Guard here immediately, and they were ready to go, stand by in all the major areas. We had state law enforcement down, ready to go in all the major areas. And fortunately, you know, we didn't see uh, Florida burn down the way you saw some of these other places, but that was because we took it seriously and people knew they were going to be held accountable. You know, Minneapolis is never going to recover from that for decades. Uh, they've totally hollowed out that city now. People don't even want to go downtown anymore. You look at some of the other damage. I mean, New York City, you still have places that are boarded up and that have not opened even since that. Uh, it really undermines the fabric of society when you have the criminals that are basically running the streets. And partially because they were weak on the riots, partially because they've enacted, quote, criminal justice reform, like abolishing cash bail. So in New York, you'll have a cop risk his life to apprehend a criminal. The criminal will come to court. The judge will just release him. And then a week later, the cop's got to risk his life again to arrest him on another crime. And it's like, why would you want to go down that road? Then you have district attorneys in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, Manhattan elected usually with huge campaign contributions from people like Soros and these other left-wing activists, and they get involved in these prosecutor races, and they elect the furthest left prosecutor you can find who basically goes into office saying, uh, I am not gonna enforce the laws I don't like. I think this law is unjust, or that law, or that law. And so people commit crimes, they get put right back out. I was talking to a guy in San, who moved from San Francisco. He said someone burglarized his house, so he calls the police. Police tells him, do you want to file a report? He's like, of course I do. They broke into my house. And they're like, well, yeah, but they're not going to be prosecuted for it. So, you know, do you really want to go through with this? And it's like, are you kidding me? Someone breaks into your house and this Soros-backed DA is not going to prosecute them? Give me a break. I can tell you in Florida, when we had a Soros-backed DA who said that he wasn't going to enforce certain laws he didn't like, I removed him from his post. But that is the way you cause your society to crumble. Because we can sit here and talk about economic policy, all these important things. If you don't have basic public safety, it all goes by the wayside. And it really causes people to think inward about, do they really want to be in some of these communities anymore? So we haven't tolerated any of that nonsense. Not only have we not tolerated it, we have a program in place now, police officers who are recruited from other states that come here, any level, municipal, county, state, law enforcement agencies, you get a $5,000 signing bonus immediately. And yes, the money's nice. And it's not like these guys are getting rich and 5,000 is great to have, although with this inflation we've seen isn't as good as it used to be. Um, but it's more than that. It's they know that people appreciate them. The state of Florida is going to do a $5,000 bonus for you. Uh, that means that we value your service. And so we've had a lot of people. I was just in Sarasota earlier today. The sheriff was telling me, you know, they had a, um, a couple. They were engaged on NYPD. And they both decided we've had enough. So they came down to Sarasota and they're just like stunned at the difference that they're appreciated quality of life and all these other stuff. So I think we're the number one state in the country for law enforcement. And I think that's, 
And I think that's one of the main reasons why, while you've seen those spikes in crime, Florida's crime rate, overall crime rate's at a 50-year low. So, Governor, this is a Republican Jewish Coalition event, so I would be remiss if I didn't, if I didn't comment on or ask you about uh, what I think is one of the most scurrilous attempts by the media to attack you, which is the suggestion that Jews are unsafe in Florida. So first of all, I can personally attest to the fact that this is legitimately the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I mean, I came, I came from another state to come to a safer state. I am responsible for no less than 10 Republican voters being in this state. That's just my direct family and relatives. They are all Orthodox Jews. Right? They came down here because this is the number one incoming state for Orthodox Jews in America. And it's Orthodox Jews who are getting beaten up on the streets of Williamsburg in New York, supposedly the tolerant state for Jews. But one of the things that, that really has, has struck me is that because you've taken a very pro-law enforcement stand, that really is where a lot of this lies. It's, it's, it's not about how much you talk about the issue, it's how much you do about the issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, so you had, um, you know, these bozos last weekend, they were going to do some hate rally. So I, I dispatched the state law enforcement there. You know, you can say things that we disagree with under the First Amendment, but if you're going out and you're issuing threats or you're trying to get in people's face, intimidate them, you know, we can hold you accountable. And so we did. Nothing, I don't think, of, of note um, happened. But what I would say, you know, what the left has done uh, I think they first did it in the Virginia governor's race where they dressed up the people with those tiki torches trying to mimic that thing that was happening at Charlottesville, and they sent them to uh, our governor's uh, candidate's campaign on the Republican, Glenn, and they were trying to act like those were his people. And what they've done in Florida is they've mimicked things like that and tried to put my paraphernalia uh, in that. I'm the most pro-Israel governor in America. You think those people like me? They don't like me. Give me a break. One of the first things I did as governor was do Airbnb to BDS and said, you're out of here if you continue with this. And we beat them. Uh, we did our first trade mission that I did was to the state of Israel. And uh, we signed the strongest bill combating anti-Semitism at our universities that any state has been able to do. And I was criticized for doing that. But, but yes, I think part of it is because it's Florida, because it's me, they want to try to create narratives as if somehow this. So what I would say is, you know, don't give the media any oxygen on this stuff. You know, you have some of these bozos out there. These people are fringe of society. They have no following in the state of Florida. We've done, from the time I've been governor, very strong. We've done probably 15 million over my first four years for security for our Jewish day schools, because if they're gonna be targeted, you're, not, you're gonna wish you didn't target them because we're gonna, we're gonna fight back. And we'll keep doing that, but there's real serious attacks uh, on Jews in this country, primarily in the New York City area, where you have attacks based on status happening very frequently, and I think it's a result of the lack of concern with law enforcement generally, but then it's kind of a woke idea that, well, you know, Jews aren't kind of the who we're worried about. We're worried about other, uh, other groups more, and that's just a stupid way to view it. Uh, but if you look at all the crimes based on status, 
It's like over half are against Jews, many of them Orthodox Jews. Very small percentage of the population, uh, but I think our record, you're way better off being in Florida than in the New York area with what's been going on, and we'll continue to be, to be very, very strong. But I would push back when they're trying to whip up some type of fake frenzy um, and act like this is representative. I could go to Pensacola, Panhandle, no, very few Jewish people there, and if you talk about moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, you will get a bigger applause there than you will in even Boca Raton. I mean, that's how Florida is. We're very proud of our relationship uh, with the state of Israel, and we're very proud to be the place where, as Ben said, other than Israel, I think we're the number one landing spot for Orthodox Jews in the world right now. Uh, and I'll tell you, when the, the big migration was going on uh, during COVID, these, you see these people with New York license plates. A lot of our voters were concerned, like, oh my gosh, is it going to be trying to turn Florida into New York? And I said, listen, I was like, the only thing I know, New York license plates, you know, if they've got the keeper on, they're going to vote for us 90% of the time. So you should, be, you should be rest assured that that's great. Well, one of the other things that, that is amazing, not only for, for you know, Jews in, in Florida, but also for, for you know, now everyone in Florida as well, is the, the school choice issue in the state of Florida has been immense, immense. Um, when my sister moved down with her four kids and a couple of her kids you know, required help at school, the, the state of Florida provides enormous resources, enormous support, and essentially school vouchers that allow more kids to opt out of going to public schools they don't want to go to and go to schools that they, that they do want to go to. And that's an amazing, amazing thing. Yeah, and look, I mean, it's not even that uh, the, the public school in your neighborhood may be, you know, quote, bad. It's just, you know, if you're somebody that wants your kids to have a religious education, the public schools are just not going to provide what you want, whether you're Jewish, Christian, it doesn't matter. And so these scholarships are really empowering parents to say, for whatever criteria you think is important, we want to empower you regardless of income to make the choice that's going to set your, uh, your child up for success. We've expanded it greatly since I've been governor. We got about a quarter of a million students on various forms of private scholarship, 363,000 students in public charter schools, which are also an effective school choice tool. But this year, uh, so it's obviously focused on low income first because the high income can, can afford private school. Uh, and so we've gradually raised the income cap because you've recognized that middle class people, particularly in Southern Florida, you know, you can make 100,000 in household income, you still may not be able to afford uh, the tuition. And so I think the reforms that are gonna go through the legislature this year are gonna take the scholarships, convert them into education savings accounts so you can send it for tuition, but you may also have money that you could apply to tutoring and other things. And it's gonna be available uh, basically regardless of income. So if you're a middle income family, you're not gonna necessarily have to worry about the income cutoff. You know, the preference will be the, the, the poor kids, but you will be eligible. And so I think the real question is gonna be is how many seats uh, in these schools are available and are they gonna be building more schools to be able to keep up with the demand? Because I think the scholarship money is gonna be there 
and I think you're gonna probably see some incentives to do some great innovation uh, when it comes uh, to education. But I just, I, I want people to be able uh, to have their kid in the best possible environment uh, that they can have. And a lot of times, that is a religious education environment. And so we're making that happen here in Florida, not just with Jewish day schools. We've got Baroque Catholic schools, you know, Protestant, it's fine. That's your choice as a parent to find the place that works for you. So Governor, the, one of the things that's hilarious is you see people come and visit the state of Florida now that I'm a resident of Florida and, and the chief tourism minister. Uh, you, you see people come in and visit the state and they, they're just shocked by how happy people are because they've been told that it's a hellscape dystopia, which is of course why everyone, including AOC, comes to vacation here. Um, so, you know, people come down here and they see how happy everyone is, and a large part of that is, is policy, and, and part of that is that you as a governor have been able to stave off the predations of the federal government. So, I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the nature of federalism, what the states need from the federal government, and going forward, what the states n need the federal government to get out of the business of doing. Well, you know, I was born and raised in Florida, and, and I've always loved it. It's always been a great place. But, you know, we were kind of known for, like, the theme parks and, um, and, and, the, and the sunshine, which, which is great. Uh, but we didn't have anything like, you know, Texas, they'll say, don't mess with Texas, right? I mean, the, you know, to have a kind of, of, a, of an attitude and a swagger. Well, I think now, because Floridians have been really proud that, that we went our own way in the last few years, uh, that we went in a way that uh, looked to maximize freedom. You know, we now can say that, you know, one of our mantras is don't tread on Florida. Uh, we're going to stand up for what's right. We're going to stand up for freedom. And yeah, we'll fight back against the federal government. So there's interesting uh, things. So they wanted to do the vaccine mandate for nurses and healthcare workers. And uh, they, we, we went to the Supreme Court on it and actually lost that case, won the case on the, the other mandate through OSHA, lost on the medical mandate. But here's the thing, the federal government needs the states and our healthcare agencies to survey the hospitals and then report who is um, a vaxxed and not vaxxed. And our view was, we don't believe someone should lose their job because of that. We believe that that's an individual choice, particularly because by the time this was coming down, it was pretty clear that it didn't prevent infection anyways. And a lot of the young nurses had had COVID and they weren't sure what, what the ramifications were them to be. So totally rational things. So we said, we're not gonna survey. Uh, they, they fined us like a million dollars, but what do I care? I have the biggest surplus in Florida history. So, <laughs> and so because we would not cooperate with them, they were not able to effectuate that policy which would have been detrimental to probably tens of thousands of people. Think about it. You're trying to fire nurses at a time when there's an acute shortage of healthcare workers? Give me a break. So I think that there are ways that, that you can be strategic uh, to try to stymie the federal overreach. For example, we brought lawsuits on the immigration, on the catch and release. And so this is, pending in front of the uh, federal district court in the panhandle, the, the case is submitted, 
the judge, we think the judge is definitely going to rule for us based on what happened at the trial. So it very well may be that the judge rules on a nationwide basis that, that Biden's catch and release policy violates the law and that he can't just be releasing people in our country by the hundreds of thousands. That's going to make some big changes. So you got to figure out ways, you know, that, that you can fight back. But one of the things that we're proud of is we, you know, Biden does this stimulus money, right? I didn't need any of it. Um, you know, he gives it to me and basically whatever we used it on was, was uh, with projects, it was just counting for the inflation that had happened because by printing the money, you cause inflation. So you spend the money on a project that's now 50% more expensive than it was three years ago. So it didn't really move the ball forward, but I think the more independent we are, the better because what they like to do is they like to use the purse strings and hold that over a state, try to coerce your behavior and say they're going to take away some of the largesse if you don't do what they say you should do. Well, folks, that is Governor Ron DeSantis, the best governor in America. Make sure that you pick up a copy of The Courage to be Free. It's out right now, number one in Amazon, and keep it there. DeSantisBook.com. Thanks so much for your support. God bless. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. PureTalk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So... I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.